Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we look at the world of prosthetics and how we can improve them using modern technology. Whether it be learning to walk and not trip over in a natural way, or using 3D printing to enhance prosthetics, we can use modern technology to enhance people's quality of life, and that might even mean improving hearing by using your fingertips. All this week and more in some stories about prosthetic science. Now with the rise of 3D printing, one of the areas that offers the most promise for really tangibly changing and improving people's lives is the use of the combination of both 3D printing and 3D scanning to develop cheap, cost-effective and incredibly perfectly matched medical devices. Now this could be for implants into people's bodies but also for prosthesis. And a new set of research out of Virginia Tech University has been focusing on ways to improve the design process for these 3D printed prosthesis. Now the problem with most prosthetics especially for children, is that prosthetics are incredibly expensive, or at least they were in the traditional manufacturing method. And not only are they expensive, if you're a child, you can quickly grow out of them. So most of the off-the-shelf prosthetics in the prior to around 2010 were incredibly complicated and generalized, and for children, incredibly not form-fitting, which meant that there was a lot of wear, it was uncomfortable to use, and not very dexterous, because they weren't really matched to your body. But with the rise of 3D printing to becoming more commercially available and more cheaply available, it means that this could be used to print and reprint prosthetics for children or anyone really. And that meant they could be customized to the wearer's body in exact detail. And there's a lot of research projects that have demonstrated exactly how this works. But one thing that is quite important to have as that is the feedback from the prosthetic itself. If you want to make a good design, you want to know if the design's actually working. And it's quite difficult for a wearer to actually be able to provide that feedback to the scientists and engineers designing the prosthesis. Yes, you can get one that fits at the start, but the more and more you use it, the more it will wear. And if you don't have the right hardness or the right softness in certain areas, not only can the prosthetic be uncomfortable, it can also be impractical and difficult to use. So that's where researcher Professor Blake Johnson and the research team involving Yuxing Tong, who are systems engineering students, outlined in the journal PLOS One a new approach to 3D printing that uses conformal 3D printing, which basically means that you can print on curved surfaces and with a very intricate process of placing down, using this conformal 3D printing method, layers which can be formed into sensors. Now the idea here is not to have a single one-and-done prosthetic, but rather to take the prosthetic, do the 3D scan to make sure you make it right in the first place, but then make some shapes, some rough outlines of the prosthetic, and then print into that sensors. And these sensors can be over some of the specific bonding surfaces between the joints. Now, why would you want to put sensors there right in the heart of the working part of the prosthetic? Well, it serves an important role because from that sensor you can get all kinds of pressure data. Where exactly is it squeezing and how much How much effort is being applied to this joint over time? Is it hard at the beginning and then rapidly decays? Or is one area okay and another not? And by having the data from the sensors, then the 3D printed prosthetic can be reprinted, 
adjusted, a new design implemented, and the same sensor re-put back in place, then you can wear it for another couple of weeks. Get a feel for whether or not there's any more adjustments that need to be made, and then go and make them. Now, instead of having one prosthetic that you have for multiple years until it breaks and it's not comfortable for those multiple years, this is a rapid process of customization to the individual's needs, not at a fixed point in time, but at an ongoing point in time. Having the device constantly adapt to the wear and tear of specifically your body at that point in time. And they did this by working with one of the colleagues of Professor Johnson's daughters, Josie Fritz-Decelli. Now she was 12 years old and she developed some, and Ms. Fritz-Decelli was 12 years old at the start of the trial and because of her birth defect had severe restricted flow into her right hand, which meant that she basically didn't develop fingers beyond the knuckles. And so they developed a 3D printed bionic hand, which is the basis of this published research. And they gave her not one, but many multiple iterations of this design and compared it to the non-personalized devices she'd been using before. They not only did they increase the contact area, they helped them pinpoint where to deploy all the electrodes in the fingers to figure out which area she needed more or less strength in. Now, for example, we're talking about a hand here. So when the hand is relaxed or when the hand is in a flexed posture, of course, the pressure distribution across all the fingers and thus the prosthesis changes dramatically. So trying to design something that suits both those circumstances is a challenge. But with the data from these sensors, they're able to greatly improve. Now, this type of printing they've used, the conformal 3D printing, also means that some of the areas are much softer, which means that the hand itself is now much softer and changeable under different postures, while the base material itself is still rigid enough to provide the degree of strength that you need in the hand. And all of these design improvements were part of this overall process, which is meant to be a roadmap for any person or parent of a child who has a prosthesis to be able to walk through and guide this personalization of their medicine. Commercial 3D printing is getting cheaper and cheaper by the day. And this kind of application shows you why it's so important to help improve the quality of life for people across the world. So by making prosthetics more affordable and incredibly more personalized, is one of the next major breakthroughs that's gonna happen in precision and personalized medicine. And this is some great work from Virginia Tech University in the United States, published in the journal Plus One by Associate Professor Johnson and Eugene Cole. One of the biggest challenges of designing and using a prosthesis is some of the most simple things that people do with their limbs, whether it be grasping a cup, taking a sip of water, getting up out of bed, or even walking up steps, or maybe recovering from a trip or a stumble. All of these things we do instinctively, but they're really hard to qualify and quantify, mostly because your brain does them without even you noticing them and they can be over in a blink of an eye. And to actually gauge and assess this kind of response is also incredibly difficult. How do you introduce a hiccup? How do you introduce, without a person knowing, something slipping in their hands or tripping and stumbling and falling? 
And all of these things make the design and the study of the body's motion in these conditions incredibly difficult. And that's what researchers from Vanderbilt University have been diving into, or rather stumbling into, in a very deliberate way. So how to assess whether or not someone is falling and what all the things that their body does in order to stop them from falling. So to do this and really dive into this topic in detail, the team at Vanderbilt University built an elaborate contraption that if you've ever played The Incredible Machine, sounds like something right out of it. Basically, it involved a treadmill, some special goggles, some weird mental arithmetic, and a heavy steel block. Now, all of these things were linked together. The test subject was strapped in to a harness suspended on a force gauge, and they walked onto this treadmill. But they had to wear some blinding goggles to prevent them from looking down. There were arrows on the ice cream level kept him from walking off the side, so the person was safe on the treadmill, but walking in a really tightly defined way, unable to see anything at their feet. And that's important, because whilst they were walking on the treadmill, the participant had to count backwards from 898 in groups of seven. And this is a specially designed trick to try and keep the brain from anticipating the stumbling block that's about to be thrown in their way. So whilst the brain is distracted trying to do this complicated mathematics, they walked along this treadmill without being able to see where their feet were and without being able to walk off it. Now, after a randomized period of time, a computer system dropped this heavy steel lump onto the treadmill and sure enough the person would trip and stumble over it and they repeated this trial over and over and over again and the whole reason they did this 190 times to be exact was to put together a large amount of data to be published in the journal of neuroengineering and rehabilitation now because our bodies are so geared to resist stumbling what you're actually monitoring when you do this test is how the body responds, which is incredibly important with patients with above-the-knee amputations because they're far more likely to fall than their typical counterparts in their age groups because the prosthetics aren't designed to compensate for the weird things your body does when you trip or think you're going to trip. Now, the treadmill device was designed to give a standardized testing apparatus to make sure that other researchers developing their own prosthetics or studying this motion had a uniform way of analyzing what the body does when it trips and falls over. Now, the idea behind this is now that they've harnessed all of this data, including force data, body response, and so on, is that they can chuck it into some large-scale simulations and build computer models of not only a person stumbling in a natural way, but also what computer-designed prosthetic legs could perform better or worse. And this would mean that people could actually also be tested. You could take people with prosthesis, put them on this testing device as well, and see if that prosthesis was actually improved to the stumbling response. And the whole idea here is to prevent more falls. But before you can study and design and improve something, you need to be able to analyze it. So that's why this complicated contraption was built by Vanderbilt University, including researchers such as Michael Goldfarb, Shane T. King, Mara Elvid, and Andreas Martinez. And they all worked together to try and piece 
a machine that could force people to stumble randomly for the purposes of science. And that's a pretty exciting thing to think about. It's a great study published in the Journal of Neuroengineering and Rehabilitation. Another type of implant that is incredibly common and useful for people with birth defects, acquired damage, or even just old age is that of a hearing implant. Hearing aids and cochlear implants have rapidly improved the quality of life for people with hearing impairments. But there's still a really big challenge for all of these devices. So yes, they can substantially improve hearing, but when there's a lot of noise around you, mold from lots of different sources, it can be quite confusing. Yes, you get some kind of boost and you can hear them, but it's difficult to make sense of them. An example is trying to be able to discern speech in a variety of different situations, especially when there's a lot of background noise. Now, this could be as simple as being in a large party field room called the cocktail party effect, where you're trying to understand words, but you're hearing lots of other words simultaneously. And just having a cochlear implant, for example, that amplifies the noise doesn't help your brain make any more sense of that. Another type of example is actually learning a second language where a lot of the tricks that your brain has in processing all that noise and filtering out what's not important doesn't really work because you're not familiar enough with the language. So trying to develop a simple and inexpensive as well as non-invasive sensor that can help improve the hearing of people was a subject of some research out of the World, out of the World Hearing Center in Warsaw, Poland as well as the University of Jerusalem. Now, what they were looking for was trying to develop a new type of device, one that could aid the picking up of different sounds in some of these noisy acoustic environments, especially in the presence of, for example, a competing speaker, somebody else talking. Now, the way in which they planned to do this was to use a pretty nifty technique, and that is to use something that we all have, or at least have in some form of the other, and that is the sense of touch. And finding a way to turn the sense of touch into a speech assistant and that might seem like a pretty weird idea but is exactly what these researchers developed now they developed a proof of concept study then they thought potentially they'd be able to improve speech understanding by giving the brain a little bit of a boost by giving it some extra information from a variety of different sources as so what they designed was a pretty minimal and low energy system where it turns tactile sensory which is called a minimalistic auditory to tactile sensory substitution device or SSD and the idea behind it is to transform low frequency speech signals into tactile vibrations that can be felt on two fingertips now it can be felt anywhere they just chose the fingertips as a pretty wide in part of the brain and they asked a group of non-native English speakers to just repeat a series of sentences and then they degraded them and embedded them in background noise. And they tried to see if the participants could make more or less sense of this noise if they had one of these boosting devices. 
Now, when the subjects could only rely on audition, their normal hearing, their understanding of the sentences was pretty poor. English was a second language to them, and they were getting sentences in English and then having background noise over the top of it. So it was quite difficult for them to hear. But crucially, their sentence understanding significantly improved when they would pair the disgraded speech signal with some complementary vibrations just delivered into the fingertips. The vibrations conveyed a specific set of frequencies known as the fundamental frequencies that characterize the speech signals. If you break down the speech sound, you will see that there's some major frequencies which are effectively the ones carrying the most information. And these particularly low frequencies can be quite useful to help boost your understanding. And that's what the researchers found. The reported improvement at the group levels was equated to about a roughly six decibel increase in the sound level. Now, for example, 10 decibels represents doubling the perceived loudness. So six decibels, it's a logarithmic scale, is still a pretty significant result. And these are pretty impressive because this didn't require any extra training or expensive or complicated devices. Other devices on the market exist that do this, but they require your brain to be trained to interpret the signals. This didn't require any of that. It was relatively straightforward and just delivering the low frequency vibrations straight to your fingertip in a pretty streamlined way. Now, of course, this isn't a final device, but it suggests a good way to use multi-sensory stimulation to provide information that can be processed in the same region of the brain, for example, in language centers, which will help people make better sense of what they're hearing. And it's an innovative approach because not only is it helping improve people's hearing, it's doing so in a low-powered, low-cost way that doesn't require extensive training or a complicated user interface. And that's especially important if we're designing this for the elderly who may have increased hearing difficulties in age. They don't have time nor the ability to be trained extensively in using a new method. This would enable people to pick it up, so to speak, and pick up the sounds more clearly. Now, of course, this is a proof-of-concept study as it's published in the Restorative Neurology and Neuroscience Journal, and a lot more needs to be done. And they plan to further improve the device and training regimes to reach the goal of that 10 decibel enhancement, which is pretty much that doubling of the perceived loudness. And they're going to use this by studying the brain under MRI to help guide their training program and improve the type of frequencies that they supply back through these devices. Now, this is some innovative work and shows what we can do when we apply all of our understanding of the brain and the way in which we understand language and hearing and apply the latest technology into that mix to help solve this problem. Now this is some great research out of the World Center for Hearing of Warsaw led by Katarina Sieschler as well as researchers from University of Jerusalem. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From listening with your fingertips and improving your recognition of speech to finding out how to not trip better and designing more customised prosthetics. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.